Hello and welcome back to a very special episode of Witch Fix. This is the first episode where I will be sharing with you my own novel, which is called Wayward. And I wrote this on my undergraduate degree because I've always liked teen pagan fiction or pagan derived fiction, I should say, because this does have its own fantasy elements to it. And I was sort of frustrated by there not being anything coming out because I obviously was growing up. Well, not obviously, you can't see how old I am. Uh, I was growing up in like the 90s and the early 2000s when because of the craft and various other things like Harry Potter, the sort of witchcraft and magic uh, fiction side of things was having kind of a resurgence. And also, um, obviously, a lot of people were becoming interested in Wicca and paganism and the bookshops were just awash with books on that. And now there's hardly anything. And I go into places and you find maybe like one book on witchcraft and it's sort of stuffed in with 98 books about mindfulness. And it did feel sort of at the time and now as well that it was something that had been forgotten about, that people weren't publishing anymore. And I was always told to write books that I wanted to read. So this is the book that I chose to write. Now, it is a story about a teenager who runs away from home. So I'm going to give a few content warnings for things like there is underage drinking, underage sex. There is some use of uh, marijuana and other things. So if that's the kind of thing that would bother or trigger you, be aware of that. It's not, I don't think, mentioned that the character is currently doing it. It is mentioned as past use. Uh, there's also a lot of arguments of what could be described as a bit of parental abuse, just in terms of shouting and obviously putting that, that child out on the street over something that, that is on the face of it quite minor. You can buy this book. I'd be very happy if you did. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. It's available as an ebook for 99p. You can read that on the Kindle app or on a Kindle. Uh, and it would really help to support the podcast. At present, I don't have a, a Patreon or anything like that. But if you would buy the book or maybe even look because I have other self-published books on there, not about Wicca, but about other things. So if you take a look at those, maybe buy one. That would help me enormously. And now I'll go into chapter one of Wayward for you. Michaela, please sit down. No, not until you stop treating me like, like what? Like you lied to us, Dad says. I didn't lie. I just, I dig my nails into my hands. Just didn't tell you. Michaela, you promised us that this would stop. No more drugs, remember? Mum, it's a bit of weed. It's not, I don't care what it is, Dad shouts. Not in my house, you hear me? You do not bring this into my house. Fine. Don't cry. Don't cry. Keep it. I feel my eyes well up and dig my nails harder into my palms. I always cry when I get shouted at and I hate it. The surface of the kitchen table swims in front of me and the lines in the pines squiggle around like worms. Mum looks up at Dad. There's a tissue balled up in the sleeve of her cardigan and she takes it out to dab at her eyes. For about 12 seconds, no one says anything and I can feel my heart in my throat. You have 10 minutes, pack and get out. It's like everything slows down, from the microwave clock to the dripping of the tap. Mum looks at me and then down at the table, at the plastic bag of weed and the couple of tablets of ecstasy that aren't even mine. Dad is looking at me, eyes stone cold behind his glasses. Dad, please. He doesn't move. I can't believe it. They're actually... This is them kicking me out. They haven't even asked me for an explanation. Just... Fuck you, I shout or try to, because suddenly the urge to cry isn't going away and I have to run into the hall, up the stairs and into my room, my dark purple refuge from the sick green carpet and the boring cream walls. From behind me, Dad shouts, I mean it, ten minutes, then I'm coming up. I look around at the band posters, books, the cuddly toys that litter my room. 
What could possibly be of use to me in ten minutes' time? What do I have that will make me anything but a homeless teenager with no money and nowhere to go? At the back of my mind, I'm thinking, they won't kick me out. They won't. They can't. The panic in my chest is different, and it's clawing at my throat and making my breath come in these horrible, gulpy sobs. There's a pink hole door in the cupboard, one I usually use for sleepovers. I take it out and start opening drawers, grabbing underwear, clothes. It's just like packing for a sleepover, only I'm never coming home. My eyes well up again and I scrub away the tears with the back of my hand. I grab my toothbrush from the family mug in the bathroom and my So Kiss Me spray from the cupboard, knocking over the row of rubber ducks that appear in all my baby bath pictures. In a moment of tooth-grinding anger, I unscrew the cap on the shaving gel I bought down for Christmas and flush it down the drain in a burst of cold water. Downstairs, Dad shouts, Five minutes! I could hear Mum sobbing in the background. My hands shake as I go back and look around my room. There's so much stuff I can't physically take with me. My guitar, or my shoes, my books, the soft toys. I grab my pink jewellery box, which has my spare cash and my silver christening stuff in it, the MP3 player on my nightstand, and my journal, stuffing them into the bag with a shower of makeup and toiletries. It's full now, and I pick it up, feeling sick to my stomach. They won't. They won't do this to me. They can't. My knees feel like rubber as I go downstairs. All our family pictures are framed along the hallway, smiling faces and hugs from my birth right up until this year's holiday. The newest one is of me, Mum and Dad, sitting on the beach in Cornwall, eating Mr Whippy ice cream. I've got Dad's hat on and we're all smiling like crazy. I want to rip it off the wall, smash all the frames on the hallway tiles, grab the fake Tiffany lamp and throw it through the glass in the door. In the kitchen, Mum cries noisily, great big heaves and gasps for air, like when Nan died. Dad comes to the kitchen door. Give me your key, he demands. My legs are shaky. Dad, you can't do this. Key, now. I'm 16. My voice rips down the centre. I hate myself for sounding so helpless. He holds out his hand. I root in my coat pocket for the house key, throwing it at him. Dad catches it and puts it in his pocket. Now get out. I shake my head. Right now, Michaela, he raises his voice. Get out and don't come back. Dad. He strides up the hallway and hauls me towards the front door, throwing it open and pushing me out onto the doorstep. I can't help it. I start to blubber, ugly crying like a baby. Dad slams the door in my face, and though I stand there crying for a long time, begging Mum to let me in, the door doesn't open again. In the end, I pick up the plastic recycling box and throw it at the glass pane in the door, but it just bounces off and clatters on the path. I hammer on the door with my fists and shout, swear, but they don't come into the hallway, not even to tell me to go away. The streetlights glow poisonous orange and everywhere shadows leer from walls and cars, merging on the ground. It's a cold and wet November night and right now I should be inside doing my English homework for tomorrow. I should be eating sausage casserole and watching EastEnders. Not knowing what else to do, I walk down the street, the bag already cutting into my shoulder. I'm glad I already had my coat on when the fight started, or else I might have forgotten it. It's almost too cold even with it on. I push one hand into my pocket and touch the small bundle of notes there. Thirty pounds gleaned from bags and pockets of various people at school. It would have been enough to keep me in weed and Bacardi for ages, especially once I got up Mum's cash card, but now it's all the money I have, aside from the couple of fivers in my jewellery box. I end up walking to the end of the street and over the road, heading for the roundabout and the street that leads to Tasha's house. I feel my anger shift into something else. Why did I let this happen? Dad never would have found out if I'd been more careful. 
he never would have found out if you'd stopped buying weed like you said you would, a traitorous voice murmurs at the back of my mind. They'd been waiting for me when I'd gotten home, mum and dad in the kitchen with a bag of weed on the table. There was a lot in there, but it was only because I'd just bought it. Christ, I'm not that bad. They caught me before, though, when dad arrested a local dealer and he'd given up my name in questioning. That was when dad had laid down the law. Once more, and you were out of this house, you understand? It was only because he didn't want to look bad at work, or worse, get thrown off the force. He doesn't care why I've done it or how it started. He just wanted it to stop. I readjust the bag as I turn onto Tasha's street. Tasha's parents are nice and hardly ever there. I'd be able to stay with her for a while, at least until my parents calm down and let me come home. When I knock on the door, Tasha answers in her dressing gown, blonde hair spiked up at odd angles. My heart sinks. She has company. Mickey? Tasha rubs a hand over her eyes, smudging her eyeliner further than it already is. What's up? My dad kicked me out. They found my stuff. I lift my foot up a little. My canvas dolly shoes are soaking already. Can I stay with you for a few days? Oh, you know, you totally could if my mum wasn't already on my back about Joe staying here. She leans in the doorway, sympathetic but distant. Joe isn't from school. He's a dropout with half a B-tech and I've never really liked him. Oh, I glance back at the dark street. Are you sure I can't just... I could sleep in the conservatory. Sorry, Tasha shrugs. Besides, she looks a bit awkward. Last time you were here, Mum made a big deal about how some stuff went missing. She widens her coal-rimmed eyes. I'm not saying it was you, but yeah, okay. I back away a little. Try Chloe, Tasha advises brightly. I will. See you at school then. See... But the door is already closed. Chapter 2 Alone in the dark again, I fish my phone out of my pocket, already walking away from Tasha's. Chloe's the better friend anyway. Tasha's always been unreliable, hooking up with guys that Chloe and I like, never buying her own stuff when we get together for a smoke, and always ready to talk about herself in the middle of one of our crises. Chloe's number is the first in my phone. I call it and listen to it ring as I walk down the street, aimless aside from the desire to keep moving. Four failed calls later, I stop trying. I remember then that Chloe's on the school ski trip. She won't be home for two weeks. With the last barricade between me and panic destroyed, I feel very alone. I stop walking and stand by someone's front gate just as the lights inside go off. Everyone's going to bed and then there's me outside, nowhere to go. Like all the wet, sagging rubbish bags stacked by the curb, I've been chucked. My shoes are soaked through and the pavement is covered in mud tracked out of someone's unfinished driveway. There's not even a dry patch of wall to sit down on. I've been relying on Chloe and Tasha to take me in. They always said they would. We'd lain on the floor of Chloe's bedroom and promised that we'd always be there to help if something bad happened, like the time Tasha got pregnant. I can't think what to do, so I retrace my steps back to my parents' house and look up at the dark windows. No one answers when I knock, or even when I shout up at their bedroom window. I realise that I'm running out of options, fast. I take my phone out and scroll through the contacts. Chloe's gone. Tasha won't have me. There are a few other names, mostly random people from school. Guys I bought weed from once or twice. No one I can really go to tonight. My aunt Stephanie's number is at the bottom of the list, but if there's anyone less tolerant than Dad, it's his sister Stephanie. The creeping loneliness of being out so late starts to wear on me. Each blotchy tree shadow waving into my path makes me jump, and the scuffling of the wind through litter and leaves puts my heart in my throat. I left the house after dark plenty of times before, but somehow it was different now I had nowhere to go. If I got approached by some creep or hurt, my parents would see how horrible it was to kick me out. 
Maybe I could even sue them and get enough money to buy my own house. The brief fantasy of my own place insulates me against the dark for a while, but soon the anxiousness comes back and I decide I need a proper plan. It's when I reach the railway bridge at the end of my street that an idea occurs to me. The railway station. It's close, well lit, and it has an all-night cafe. If I have to, I can stay there until morning, then go home and try to catch mum once dad's gone to work. I can reason with her, at least she doesn't love her job more than her own kid. I haul my bag up onto my shoulder and walk under the railway bridge. It's only a short walk from there to the station, past car dealerships, their enormous displays still lit up, and then the Sainsbury's petrol station until I finally reach the town centre. This late, there are very few people still around, a few groups of students in the distance, clearly having fun, loud and staggering on high heels. There are one or two huddled shapes in doorways and against shop walls. Even a day ago, I would have seen more of myself in the drunk twenty-somethings than in the homeless druggies of the city. Now I'm not so sure. The all-night cafe by the train station is a blocky building with a green and white awning. It's lit inside with fluorescence, and I can smell the coffee and frying grease from the end of the street. As it's Saturday night, there's already a puddle of half-digested kebab vomit near the cafe, and I'd sidestep it on my way inside. The cafe smells like Dettol, an old cooking, and I fumble coins from my jeans pocket for a hot drink. The dead-eyed student who serves me barely looks up from her magazine as the machine fills a paper cup with hot water. In the crumbly foil stuck to the kitchen window, I can see myself. My hair's all fucked up, pink and black straggling all the way down to the collar of my coat. My nose is running and my eyes are all red and puffy. The black velvet of my coat is all dusty from where my old holdall was rubbed off on it. Another 60 pence gets me a stale doughnut and I pick up a copy of the free Metro newspaper to read at one of the window booths. I sit and pull pieces off the doughnut, eating out of sheer exhaustion. My fingers are all red and cold, and the pink polish Chloe put on my nails is almost all gone. Really, I should have been asleep hours ago. Now I'm bypassing tired and I'm moving straight into walking dead mode. I barely even notice the door opening, admitting another late-night customer. As I chew fragments of sugary dough, I look down at the newspaper. There's nothing much that interests me. I don't think I've ever actually read a newspaper before now. Behind me I can hear the sizzle of fresh frying and another paper cup being filled with water. After a short while, the till beeps and money chinks into its plastic compartments. Footsteps scuff on the greasy vinyl floor tiles, coming towards me. I expect the other customer to take one of the unoccupied booths, but the newcomer, a boy with thick dark hair, appears in front of me, holding a steaming cup of tea and a chip plate with a bacon sandwich on it. Can I sit here? I nod without thinking, scuffling the newspaper to one side. Cray, he says as he holds out his hand. It takes me a moment to recognise the gesture as an introduction. It's so old-fashioned. Michaela, I say, shaking his hand. And what brings you to this greasy corner of Bath tonight, Michaela? Cray asks, peeling back the top of his sandwich and dousing the insides with brown sauce. I don't really have anywhere else to be. I glance up at Cray and find him watching me closely. I wonder if maybe I should have lied and told him that I was going somewhere or waiting for someone. He's maybe Korean, like one of the English teachers I had ages ago. In fact, he's kind of cute, with his nose stud and scruffy black hair. I'm the weirdo sitting with my dishevelled pink hair and my eyeliner all smudged, my lipstick faded to nothing. Still, Cray smiles at me. Tell me about it. He pulls the tea bag out of his cup. When I ran away from home, I spent like seven hours at the bus station trying to work out where to go. I study him with interest, taking in his long black coat and fingerless grey gloves. He looks perfectly clean and normal. Despite that, he's weirdly posh, and the way he speaks isn't local. He sounds like he's from the South East. You're a runaway. You're not. My parents sort of kicked me out. Just like that, it's true, and the pathetic tears are back. Hey, 
he says, leaning over the table, his hand touching mine while I sob over the crumpled pages of the metro. Hey, it's okay. They're your parents. They have to let you come home. But, but they hate me. I... What did you do? He asks quietly. Nothing. I did absolutely nothing, I tell him, feeling again the viciousness of that fight. I hadn't done anything that a good father wouldn't forgive. Cray looked at me for a second, then puts half his bacon sandwich on my plate. Thanks. Eh, it's okay. I know what parents can be like. They're fucking impossible sometimes, he says, and we eat in silence for a while. He coughs as I stir my coffee distractedly and says, If you need a place to stay, a load of us have this house. Us who? The runaways, Cray says, making a face as he hams up the mystery. There are quite a few of us, and the house was just standing empty, so... He looks at me, and I think for a second that he looks worried. If you need somewhere safe, it's better there than on the street, you know? You're squatting. I've never met a squatter before, although, to be fair, I've never met a runaway before, either. Sure, though most of us prefer to call it occupying. He sucks sauce off his thumb. I know that stranger danger thing is a pretty big issue, but you can trust me. And yes, I do realise that's exactly what a psycho axe murderer would say, but it's true. I'm heading back there as soon as I finish my tea. I waver, feel my head pound for all the crying I've done in the past few hours. Cray's been so nice to me, and I really don't want to stay in the sleazy cafe all night. Maybe I could stay the night with him and his friends, and then call Mum in the morning. I look at him, finding his big brown eyes on me. He seems okay. Not crazy or scary. Still, I'm not sure, and more than anything, I would wish I was back in my bedroom. Back home, where the thought of going off with a stranger would seem stupid, like one of those stories from school where the drunk girl gets kidnapped by the fake minicab. The stories where you're glad it's not you, when you think it never could be you. Cray looks at me anxiously. Look, I, I can't go home and just leave you here, he says softly. I can stick around, OK? At least until you find a friend you can stay with. I can't stay with them, I mutter. I've got nowhere to go. I don't know what to do. He takes my hand again, and I stifle another flood of tears. I can't believe how pathetic I'm being. I should have thrown a brick through the window of Dad's car, or shouted on the doorstep all night long, but instead I'm crying like a little kid. Still, Cray's hand on mine makes me feel a bit better, like I'm not alone after all. Family? he asks. Aunts? Godparents? I shake my head. My aunt's a total cow. He smiles at that, and I find myself smiling back. Cray thinks for a moment, drumming his fingers gently on the back of my hand. How about we get you into a shelter, he suggests. I think about those crazy homeless people you see on the street, covered in dirt and smelling like old hair and B.O. I imagine a room full of them all sleeping on camp beds, waking up and yelling, following you about. Addicts and drunks and me with my pink holdall. I shiver. Maybe not, Cray sighs. We've exhausted all the options, and I'm really scared that he's going to leave me. Give me up as a lost cause and go back to his house. Then I'd be stuck, all alone. Can I come with you? I ask quietly, trying to trample over my fear. He looks at me cautiously. You don't have to. I'm, I'm sure there's something we haven't thought of. He sighs. But then, if we haven't thought of it, we probably aren't going to crack it now, and you look like you've had just about enough. I nod. So do you want to come back to the house with me? He asks. I nod again, not trusting myself to speak. Okay. Cray slides out of the booth, and when I follow him, he takes my hand and opens the door for me. You can join me next week for chapters three and four, and in the meantime, don't forget you can contact me on Twitter at witchfix, 
and by email at witchfixpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>